I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. We talk about flavors and characteristics of wine all the time in our business, as if they are concrete facts. And in a way, when you're smelling and talking about wine, it helps to be able to nail down the tangible aspects of it all. But tasting things is also enmeshed in perception. We may think we are tasting and smelling things in wine, but really, these flavors are created by our brain. And our different brains create different flavors and ideas attached to those flavors. When our brain creates flavors, there are two main things that are happening. First, there is a substance smelled, and this substance becomes a data file, so to speak, in your mind. The second thing that happens is you filter this information through cultural paradigms and your own bank of past experience. So once we both smell something, there are infinite ways in which our ideas of what we have just smelled can differ from one another. The science of flavor is a pretty interesting field of study. You probably all have Harold McGee's On Food and Cooking, and whenever you look something up, you'll find out what molecule makes one thing or another taste a certain way. But neuroscientist Gordon Shepard points out that though each food has its characteristic molecular composition, modified by its preparation, by themselves, foods have no flavors. They are the raw materials out of which the brain creates flavor. So how does our brain create flavor? Well, molecules that enter taste and smell pathways activate olfactory receptor proteins. This sounds simple. A molecule enters your nose or mouth, it activates your smell receptor. You experience smell. We can understand this as much as we understand how our eyes see things and create images by interpreting light. But perceiving light is different. An eye making an image from light sends a one-dimensional picture for the brain to make sense of, to create depth from. Our olfactory system making information for our brain creates what scientists call multi-dimensional images that vary based on the size of the molecule we perceive. 
based on the saturation of molecules in the region we are perceiving and the shape of the molecules we are perceiving. The receptors that transmit this information into an idea of flavor are much more complicated than the receptors required for our sense of sight. Flavor perception really is a new frontier in neuroscience, and we are watching the opening act. But let's step back for a minute and talk about sense paradigms. Most of us grew up within the five sense paradigm where we are taught that there are five senses, sight, sound, touch, taste, and smell. But the five sense paradigm is a cultural construct. In fact, many cultures in the world have very different sense paradigms. They don't see their world split up into five different sensations. How does our cultural construct of sensation affect how we perceive flavor? Also, our brain is so powerful. So much of sensing occurs without stimuli. Here I'm talking about dreams, hallucinations, a reflex you might experience when you think you see or smell something, or even when a faint stimulus triggers completely unrelated sensations. Like when you see a room that looks like your grandma's kitchen and you can smell her famous chicken soup. Or when musicians experience heightened heart rates just by thinking about songs in their head. Because sensations can occur when this stimulus is physically absent in the environment makes one wonder, do we really experience the world through our senses? Or is life experienced more through our own cognitive conceptions of reality? A label, the name of a grape variety, or even a hint at what a blind wine might be, such as the color, will send your brain into a flurry, causing up all sorts of past ideas to weave together something that makes sense of the world in front of you. To me, what I find so enticing about wine is not the actual chemical compounds found in the glass, but the mystery of what happens neurologically after taking a smell or a sip. Why are certain flavors so universally craved that a multi-billion dollar industry has sprung up around this beverage? Why are certain flavors so compelling that they draw me back and you back again, again and again and again? It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand patrick capiello on the show nice to see you again thanks lady Great to have you here. Last time you were uh, working at Guilt Restaurant, it feels like a lot has changed since then uh, in terms of your own career progression. What's what's happened in the meantime? Yeah, a lot, I guess, huh? Um, 
Well, I guess the last time we talked, uh, Gilt was still open <laughs> and I was still working there. And then there were some changes there. Uh, obviously, the, the the new management about the hotel decided that they wanted to do something different with the space. And um, so they decided to uh, to shut us down, which was sad and uh, unfortunate. And uh, after that happened, they approached me about staying on, you know, as the wine director of the hotel entirely. They made, they made me actually a really nice offer. And, and uh, you know, even though I was sad that, uh, you know, all this stuff that we had worked so hard for, Justin and I, the chef, Justin Bogle, because you had won a grand award and was yeah, this yeah. a goal of yours of that course. you wanted to do. Justin had retained the two Michelin stars that we had received at some point. So it was, it was a, I think, a pretty, you know, there weren't a lot of restaurants with two Michelin stars and a grand award point spectator. And, you know, a cellar is wide and deep that, you know, that we had. So made sense, made no sense to me, but, but, uh, you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't make the decisions based on that, I guess. So we, we, went, we, 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 uh, embraced it and I, I took the opportunity to, um, take some time off. That was the original idea. I was just going to kind of sit around the apartment and play some PlayStation and do oh, a whole yeah, lot of whatever. <laughs> the Instagram feed at that time was blowing up. Oh, that, with, uh, <laughs> two and three Michelin star lunches. Well, I, I definitely cashed out some of my, uh, some of my, some of my lunches with my friends that have been promising for me for years. They wanted to take me to lunch, but I never had time to do it. So all of a sudden I had some time. So how many how many stars did you do in one day? It was, was it was a week. We did we did, I did I did a lot of stars. I don't remember how many it was. It was yeah. It was like yeah, a lot. <laughs> we can go back and look. A it's on the feed. It's on the feed. It was a Milky Way. Yeah. Anyway, it was good. It was good. But then that ended, and then I then I really was just sitting around the the, the house, and you know I was it was good. I, I went home for a while, and you know. I got to see my family, which is a rarity, and in, in, in Rochester, kind of hanging out with my my nephews and nieces, and. And then, and then came back and really, you know, I didn't, I didn't have much of a plan. I knew that, I thought that I would, that I would, I don't know. I really, I had no idea what I was going to do. But uh, so then I, I got a, a call from my friend, friend Richard Quo, who is, uh, who was a previous uh, co-chef at a restaurant called Frey. That was what it was called. In Brooklyn. Yeah, it's, that was, was that. Now it's Aska. Aska. So without, without Richard. Don't exactly. Me. Freddie and Richard were together at Frey and uh, they, they split up and, and, Freddie started Aska and then Richard kind of was bouncing around doing some private chef stuff. And uh, he came across this building where there was a restaurant called the Bowery Kitchen. And um, the owner um, offered him a position as the head chef. So he asked if they could maybe just change the concept a bit. So they, they reopened the restaurant as Pearl and Ash. And it was the first incarnation of Pearl and Ash. So there was actually a time period where Pearl and Ash was open and it was only Richard involved. So he, he was just basically, and, and the food that he was doing was, it was very, it was very like, like Sambar-esque. There was like pork buns and, you know, just that, that kind of stuff, more, more, more casual, not really what he was doing at Frey. They didn't have any real front of the house uh, kind of, not, not, they didn't have any front of the house management. They had nobody really managing what was happening. So Richard was kind of doing everything. And I think he was pulling his hair out a little bit. So they decided to bring in a manager and that's when Brandon McCrill came on board with them. And Brandon came on and he, you know, he really saw the potential of Richard's cooking and with the space, but really, you know, believed that there should be some changes made before, before they really do this. So he convinced uh, Alessandro, who is our, our business partner who owns the building, that he should shut down for uh, six weeks and, and really retool everything, go for maybe do some modifications in the dining room, as well as some stuff in the kitchen, kind of just get it ready to, to, to go and, and then, you know, restaff the whole place and kind of change some of the some of the menu items as well. Most of the menu items, actually, the idea was to try and Brandon and Richard both had a great idea of like a deconstructed tasting menu. 
which I think maybe is a term that other people use, but it really is. I mean, you know, it, it's the food that Richard was doing, similar to the food that he was doing with with, with Freddie, but in all all small plates a la carte situations. So, um, so you kind of order up your own tasting menu exactly. in a way, like you picked what you with, courses you want without a doubt. Tasting, yeah, but they're tasting menu sized. Exactly, exactly, and you can get them in larger portions if you want. Or that was the original thing. We, we, we played with it a little bit, but. So the, during this shutdown, I got a text message from Richard saying, "Hey, um, we got this. New, I got this new restaurant. Would you be interested in you know coming by and maybe talking about giving us a hand with the wine program?" And you knew Richard from from Frey. I mean, he actually did a trail at at Gilts years before, and then we became friends when I went to Frey. Uh, I we had a great meal, and then he, him and Freddie came to dinner at Gilts. So we, and we just became friendly. We would talk a lot, and you know, he lives in my neighborhood. He lives like two blocks from me, so we get coffee every now and again. Especially after you know the announcement of Gilt closing, he was trying to set me and uh, Justin Bogle up with a with a guy, a finance guy who wanted to invest in a restaurant because Justin and I really wanted to open a restaurant. That was that was going to be the ultimate goal. Um, and so Richard was being really helpful with that, and you know. Um, yeah, we were hanging out more and more. And then he's like, hey, listen, I know you're still not sure what's going on, but if you want to, if you want to come and work with us for a bit, love to have you do it. So I went in and talked to him and talked to Brandon and Brandon was a, he's, Brandon's a very interesting guy. One of, one of my closest friends now, but I remember sitting with him and him being like, basically telling me I, had, I was gonna have to work for free and maybe he'd give me an FB credit. And I was sitting across and thinking to myself, this guy's like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like a 39 year old man. I'm a 40 year old dude. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think I should work, I can work for free anymore, but I'm like, you know what? It was enticing. And, and, and I honestly don't think better to do. And I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. This will be fun. I said, but, but if we do it, it's not going to be like a 20 bottle wine list. I'm like, let's start with like a 200 bottle wine list. That makes more sense to me. It, it's of no use to bring somebody who only works with like 3000 bottle wine lists in to make a 20 bottle wine list. There are people that are better at that than me. I don't think I'd be very good at that at all. I don't even think I was very good at making a 200 bottle wine list, which is why we're at 1300 now, obviously, because I, 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 you know, I just feel like more comfortable in, in, in a larger wine list situation. So yeah, after a lot of negotiation with what the wine list was going to be like and me convincing them to spend some money on some uh, wine storage, we, we went forward and we opened on February 25th, almost a year now. Um, with a 200 bottle wine list and friends and family occurred. And during friends and family, we sold almost all the wine. It was unbelievable. And, you know, we had a lot of sommeliers that were in just because we invited them and, and they got in and, you know, you either could drink the $10 Sauvignon Blanc I was pouring by the glass or you could order off the wine list. And, you know, the approach with the wine list was to, was to keep it cheap. And that was the other thing I said to them as well. I'm like, I'm like, let's be ready for a high beverage cost right away. I'm like, if you really want to change the game, if you really want to do something unique, you're on the Bowery, like it's, it's going to be scary enough that we're going to have bottles of wine that cost over 200 bucks. But if they're a five-time markup at 200 bucks, you're only going to piss people off. So let's do the right thing and let's, let's make the wine list priced well. Do you think that's a more cultural moment? Do you feel like we're in this period of time where it's like more important to not do high markups now it is <laughs> i mean i think yeah i mean i think that's i think that that that, that what we did affected it i mean i'm and not 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 just not to not to, i mean i don't think I, I didn't invent low markups but for sure we shoved them down everybody's throat and now it's a big problem for a lot a lot of wine directors and i know that there are a lot of people that are not real happy with me but i don't know what to do you know that that's that's all that's that's what i what i was doing that at guilt already the wine list prices at Gilt were super soft too. And it, it was what I learned at Tribeca Grill from David Gordon was always like that, like ripping people off is not nice. And eventually it'll bite you in the ass. And even at Veritas, like Tim always insisted we have wines under 30 bucks on the wine list because it's because otherwise, you know, I think he, he made a statement that the press will kill you. And so it was all fair warning given to me by people that I trust that, that were, did the right thing. So 
Little markups were always part of my life. If you look at Veritas when they first opened, that was what made that place famous because it was all this old wine that you could get really cheap. And people love that. People love feeling that they're getting one over on like a, a sommelier or a restaurant owner. You see people's look in their eyes when they feel like they're getting it really cheap. And I, they are getting it really cheap, but what's better for them to walk out pissed off they had to pay so much or, or for them to feel like they, they won? So let them win. So it's better for everybody. Yeah, so we open and, and then... And then um, um, you were kind enough to write a, a, an article for Eater that I think really also just, changed the game. It was just an interview with you. It, 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 it was. was just you talked. <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah, but anyway, you well that 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 I think that article really put the the exclamation point on what was happening there. That was the, that was the first week. That's the first week we were open, and after that, we saw a, a, a huge history of people coming. Like, like it, all, it was a groundswell of of not just um, people that are into wine, but a lot of people in the industry. So it automatically became like an industry hangout. It was also open late. Without a doubt, yeah. Which allows people to go after work. Exactly. And, and we were encouraging that. We wanted songs to come. We wanted chefs to come. We, 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 you know, we looked at what happened at Blue Ribbon and what happened. And that was when I first moved to New York in 2001. Like, that's when Blue Ribbon was happening. And we'd go there and I'd be like, holy shit, that's Mario Batali. Like, that was pretty cool. And, you know, you'd go there and eat bone marrow and, and drink great wine. And, and it was a cool experience. And then it happened again at Momofuku, I think, that that, that started becoming part of the, the, that, you know, that movement as well. And there were a few of the restaurants that really, I think, added to that, but it had been a long time. And, and I feel like also uh, the Manhattan restaurant scene as a whole, like two years ago, was maybe not as exciting as it is right now. And I think that it, there was a result, a result of many restaurants that have opened all very close to us too, I think. I think with, with Robert Bohr opening Charlie Bird, with Thomas Carter doing Estella, um, with us, and, that, and now there's so many other restaurants that are coming up around that. It's really exciting. It seems like the Bowery area is really kind of blown up. It sure is, yeah. And there's already rumors of a lot of people that we know in the industry going to be come, coming down there and in, in, in the hood too, which is great. I mean, you know, I remember, I think you, I think it was interviewed with Daniel Jonas and him talking about when other restaurants come to the neighborhood, how a lot of, a lot of people in the restaurant business get nervous when you have competition. But his point was, it's the best thing for business is when you have other people down there. And for us, it's great because more people coming downtown wanting to eat is going to be... Nothing but but a but a good thing for us. So we're excited, and you know we're happy to have all the neighbors. Was it a big change for you to go south of Houston because you hadn't worked that far down before? Uh, well, I mean, I was at Tribeca Grill, which was down, but that's obviously a much different neighborhood. But no, I mean, I, I live in that neighborhood. I live five blocks from the restaurant, so it's my neighborhood. And 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 that was the other I think inspiration was the fact that there weren't there were no re there are no restaurants that you could get a decent bottle of wine except for maybe Frank. I think it's probably, and, and Frank, you know, they, they really, I think I got really upset when we started getting critical kind of, you know, I don't know, some, some people that started reviewing us started making comments regarding the large wine list and kind of how it was stupid and not, didn't make any sense for the Bowery and like we were doing something wrong. And I remember I really, it, it was a hard, it was a hard few weeks there. I, I, I didn't, wasn't doing well. And, um, yeah, so I think uh, it was it was it was difficult to, to feel that, but but I think looking, I remember going to Frank and going to Little Frankie's as well, and you see these wine lists that so are huge, and yeah, stuff. and yeah. and all priced well. So I think that we weren't the first person to decide to come downtown and do that, but and also Ten Bells, I think you know you could also drink well there, and and maybe it's a different scene. I think there's two there's there's two different wine scenes that were occurring simultaneously in in New York for the last few years, and I think that what, what are those? I mean, I think, think you have the, the natural wine movement, you know, the more hipster wine movement, if you want to call it that, and then the more classic wine movement. And, you know, like like Burgundy and Bordeaux on one side and then Jura and the Loire Valley on the other. And I think that what what I tried to do at Pearl and Ash was to bring both of those things together because 
I think when you make a wine list, I think the mistake that sommeliers make is they make a wine list that, that they're excited about and they don't think about their guests. And in the end, you can make as great a wine list as you want, but if your guests need an encyclopedia to figure out what the hell everything is on the list, it's not gonna bode well for any of you. You should have stuff on there that people are comfortable with. You should have Merlot from Napa Valley. Just because it's not exciting or hip doesn't mean it's not something that is important to have on your wine list. I mean, you know, I pour Pinot Grigio by the glass because I believe that it's good to make your guests feel comfortable. So yeah, all that kind of happened and, and yeah. But I remember you going down you know, you were talking about selling Bordeaux and obviously you've always been a big Burgundy guy. Was there a learning curve involved in terms of carrying some of those other wines? I mean, you had stuff from the Jura and the Loire previously. Yeah. I remember you used to sell a lot of stuff even as far back as Veritas from the Loire. Yep. That's true. I, I had a lot to learn for sure about, about, about a lot of that, a lot of those areas. I think Loire Valley, I had, I had some good mentors that taught me a lot about it, but there was, there's only scratching the surface. You know what I mean? I think that I was drinking, I, I would say that the, the, the Dresner portfolio was probably my gateway to that whole world. And it's still a staple. And I mean, it's such a dependable portfolio. Like it's, it's from every region which they, you know, move into, I think they're the wines that they, that they bring to the US are, are pretty important. But now those wines have almost become the classics in some ways. I mean, if you go to Paris, I was just in Paris a week and a half ago. And, you know, for sure, there's all of the wines that well, not all the wines, but most of the most of the judgment wines are on wine lists. But you're you're seeing it dominated more by, I don't know, the new the newer the newer movement within that movement and wines that like Zev brings in here to to, to New York or Camille. I think that it's more. It's I think it's a little th- those wines are maybe pushing the envelope a little bit more. Uh, I think that the that there's there can be there can be variation within those wines. So I, I think it's more risky, but... Um, the ones that are pushing the envelope, you yeah, think variation. For sure, for sure, it can be, yeah. From, not for, from, I mean, from, from everybody's portfolio. I think any, anybody, any winemakers that are, that, are, that are pushing the envelope with sulfur and, and, and whatnot, and maybe not using the best environment to make the wines can be, you know, there's, 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 there's risk. How do you end up bridging that gap for the guest? I mean, I know you have a lot of different levels of clientele coming in, you have you know, people sommeliers are off work. You have just random people who hear that this is a cool place. It seems busy and everyone's into and they come in. And I mean, how do you have that conversation with people like, oh, some of these aromas and flavors are maybe not what you might be expecting? Yeah, it's, it's I mean, I ask a lot of questions. I try to spend a lot of time with the tables and, and, and it's difficult because we're, we're busy, which is great, but I have an awesome, you know, sommelier team right now, like two young ladies who I'm very proud to have working with me now. And, and, and I teach them the same way that I was taught. You know, it's important that you get as much information when you're talking to a guest at that moment. Cause once you open the bottle of wine, if it's not the right bottle of wine, it's too late. And it's, and it's only an uncomfortable situation for everybody involved. So it's better to ask the right amount of questions and the, and the right questions, even if you need to keep asking a lot of questions. I'm like, I, you know, I, I definitely, if there are nights where I'm working with, with Kim or with Bryn and I, and it's just me and them and they're at a table stuck talking, I'm, I'm drowning. I'm a 41 year old man. And I can't, I get up and down a flight of stairs every, every five minutes. I definitely get frustrated when they're at a table too long, but, um, but you know, in the end, I know that they're doing the right thing. They're doing the right job. And I guess is going to be so satisfied with a bottle of wine that, that they pick out for them. So what are some of the questions that you find work for you? I think you got to start real basic. I think um, determining there, there are, there are words that, that, that maybe are more universal. Like I, the first thing I ask people, obviously they want white or they want red wine. And then I ask them if they like drier wines or fruity wines. So you're prejudiced against orange wine. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I never didn't know there was orange wines. (laughs) 
uh, yeah. <laughs> so then I, then I try to determine dry or, dry or fruity, I think is the best question to ask. For me, it's the separation between the new world and the old world on a really broad stroke. I mean, it's, and then you can bore down after that. Okay, do you like wines more light-bodied, more medium-bodied, more full-bodied? And just, it's like you're a detective. That's what I always tell, tell Kim and Brimbolt. I'm like, you know, you have, to, you have to figure out the questions that will help you continue to, you know, bring the circle down to be right on that particular wine that, that, that you know is going to be perfect for them. And it's a learning process. I mean, I still, I mean, I'm still learning about terms that guests use that I don't know how to put into a glass necessarily, but it's, you know, that's that dialogue that, that keeps you sharp. And, and as, as there's more wines that come in to, you know, the U S that weren't here before, there's more aromas and there's more flavor profiles that are, that are there to have to deal with. But I definitely like, you know, people, I feel like people are more adventurous than ever, or at least they want to be on the surface. So you get people that'll be interested in the Jura and, and I definitely love the Jura now. I, I think it's great that the Jura has become a staple now. And I believe that it has. I think that for a long time, when it first started coming on the scene, people were like, ah, it's a trend. It'll be gone before you know it. The wines are dirty. The wines are screwed up, whatever. Um, and you know, it's like what's happened with Sherry. I think that for long enough, somebody stuck with it and and made sure that they were serving the wines to people who were prepared to taste them. And, and now I think that it's exciting because there's more wines coming from these regions than ever. And yeah, there are wines that are really weird from that region, but I, I think uh, there's, there's an opportunity to, to, to really explore what's happening in the joy that w- wasn't here before. And, and Sometimes I notice you sit down with guests at their table and talk with them about the wine. How did that start? And was that kind of a departure from you coming from that kind of two-star Michelin, more luxurious uptown environment? Yeah, I think so. I think it, it, it really, in, in the dining room, it came in a necessity because the dining room is so tight. If I'm standing in the aisle and talking to somebody, I'm going to get like knocked into by like five waiters who are trying to get by me with, 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 with uh, plates. And also I think for me, I look at it like trying to bring down the intimidation factor. Like I don't ever want to be an intimidating person. Um, I don't want the wine list to be intimidating. I'll know, I, know what it, I know it can be, but I want people to be like very comfortable with the idea of buying a bottle of wine off that wine list and trusting me. And I feel like bringing myself down to their level, you know, is a way to do it. And, you know, I think like what doesn't like Fridays that they like kneel down when they take your order away. <laughs> it's like so corny to make that comparison. But I mean, you know, that, that's a pretty successful restaurant chain. So maybe they're doing something right. I don't know. But I, yeah, I, and I and also, you know, it was, it was, it just felt natural. So yeah, no, I, I, I would sit down with everybody. I mean, you know, even when we had critics and I would, I would sit down whether I knew they, who they were or not, it was just going to happen by default because that's what, what I was doing. So I feel like it was my, my desire. And, and also, you know, I mean, it's like, it's a casual restaurant. Like I wear, I wear a t-shirt every day. It's not supposed to be intimate. But it wasn't always that way. I mean, when you first started, you were wearing suits. I was you, right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, right. Somebody called me out. Who was it? Somebody was like, dude, why are you wearing a tie? You're on the Bowery. And I was like, yeah, why the fuck am I wearing a tie? I'm on the Bowery. So like literally that, that, that like, yeah, that next day I was like, I'm done. I'm not, I'm not going to wear a tie anymore. I'm going to wear, I mean, you know, I, I did what I used to do at the hotel. I'd show up in a t-shirt and jeans and pair of Converse. And then I would change into a suit every, every I mean, I do all my cellar work at the hotel that way. And then the same thing was happening at Pearl and Ash. I had like a, a shirt and a tie on. So I was wearing jeans, but I, but I had a shirt and a tie. But I don't know. I, I know it's like that mentality. It was there. It's stuck there, right? The idea that if you're the sommelier, you have to dress the part, Right. You got to wear thick frame glasses. You got to wear a tight fitting suit and a skinny tie or whatever. <laughs> like all that stuff that, yeah, I was doing before anybody was doing, I guess. But but I think it's, uh, it was fun to break free of that. It really felt like, yeah, 
it really felt like I broke free from it. It was great. It was great. And you're right. Now, now it's not, not even an option. I don't really own ties. I mean, I have one for the poly. That's basically why I have it. Do people come up to you and say, are you the Somi? I mean, when you go to the table, I guess, are people, do they understand right away that you're the wine guy or does it I mean, take a minute? I think sometimes they do. I know I go to the table a lot and people are like, oh yeah, we wanted to talk to the sommelier. I'm like, yeah, okay. I'm not the janitor, I promise. I'm definitely <laughs> I, I mean, it's, yeah. I, th I think now it's become more known for people that go there that I, that, that, that it's a more casual environment. You also, you know, the music's so loud in there and it's, it's, you know, it's a very ruckus environment. So I don't think it seems too, too, too surprising, but I think initially it maybe was a little shocking to people, you know, I mean, especially when I'm wearing a t-shirt. Yeah. I think it's, I think it, I think it throws people off for a loop a little bit, but you know, I think I more had questions about whether I was the sommelier when I was working at the Palace Hotel, you know, because I didn't have a, like a pin. <laughs> was oh, probably, I, I think it was probably, probably, probably often gotten those questions more. So, you know, I think it's a, I think it's, I've never been a traditional person in my approach, I, I guess. I don't know what that means. And you mentioned the Palais. I mean, how long have you been involved with that and what's going on with that for you? So La Palais, I moved to New York in 2001 when I was working at Tribeca Grill, and that would have been year two for the Palais. Um, and Daniel was at Montrachet down the street. And, you know, David Gordon, who's the wine director at Tribeca Grill, was kind of was the guy who helped him out with it forever. So I was around it forever. I mean, it was, you know, I, I worked I worked a lot at the restaurants during the Palais because when I was at Veritas, Tim was there when, or David was there. So I, I usually wound up catching the side stuff, but I always worked all the day events. I always went to all the after parties. So it was part of my life, but it was like not, you know, it, it wasn't what it was not what it is now. I mean, it's much different now, but. What was it like then? Back then it was fun. It was awesome. It was fun. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was so great to, you know. Presumably it's still. It's things. amazing. It's, it's even more now, but. But I remember like, you know, going to Montrachet, like Yoshi Takamura and I would sneak over to Montrachet like while they had the rare wine dinner after we finished work and we'd go in the wine cellar and like Daniel would bring us like tastes. And it would be like Veronique, Duran and Christophe Romain doing a musée dinner at Montrachet like back to the fifties, like the real deal. And we go and hide in the wine cellar at, at, at Montrachet and Dana would bring us taste of the glasses for us to taste in the, in the cellar. It was great. It was great. And then the poly itself working on was so awesome. I mean, I, I know, I, I know, I know Christoph for me, like that's a pretty awesome experience. I, I hold him in high regard as a winemaker, but like, you know, he knows me and that's kind of cool. That's, that's kind of cool. Christoph for me, meets a lot of people, but you know, I don't know that, 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 it feels, I feel very lucky to have the relationship that I have with Daniel and, and working the Poway and him, you know, even early on, like he, I went to, first time I went to Burgundy was 2003. And when I went, he set up all my visits. I visited, you know, Dominique Lafon. I visited Christophe Romier, like all these guys, Jean-Marc Rouleau, like all these guys that back then I didn't even realize how important they were. I was, I was just, uh, you know, just getting started. But, and then since then it's become amazing. And, and, you know, to work with the sommeliers that we get to work with at this event, although it can be difficult. I mean, obviously my role now is different. Um, so what is that? Well, the year before last, um, when we were in San Francisco, we were at the after party at the Michael Mina Steakhouse and it was me and Daniel and David sitting there. And, and I'd always helped David with, with as much as I could. I, I mean, he knew I was always there for him. I was a tough for him. I just did whatever he needed. I always had his, I was like kind of his right hand whenever David was running the song team. So we were sitting there and David said uh, to Daniel, he was like, I, think, I don't think I can do this anymore. I'm just getting too old. It's just too much for me. I, you know, I, don't, want, I don't want to do it anymore. It's, it's, you know, it's too much stress or whatever the excuse was. I mean, it, it, yeah, he's saying, and he said, I think you should let Patrick do it. And 
Not he, much was said. Did you know that he was going to do that? Or? I mean, you know, he had always made jokes that someday I was going to take it over. Like when we would be there and someone would be driving him crazy and he, he would put his arm on my shoulder and say, soon it'll all be yours, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, one day, all of this grief. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's it's funny because, so yeah, so then 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 within a few months, Daniel sat down with me and said, would you be interested in doing it? And I said, yeah, but I said, I only want to do it if Daniel or if David is going to be there to help me because I, I don't I don't feel like I could take it on this much and this quickly. And I said, I also want to be able to have a support team, you know, to help me as well. And that was when we spoke about bringing Yoshi back from Japan to help. And he's really been a huge help and, and Risto. Cause you guys used to work together. Exactly. A couple restaurants. Exactly. Yoshi and I worked for four years, Tropic Girl and four years of Veritas. So he's back and, and helping on that side as well. So it's not just, I mean, I definitely am the person who has to do all the paperwork and I'm definitely the one that has to send all the emails, including the emails that maybe are, are and aren't the ones that some ladies want to receive, but yeah, I mean, but those guys are all supporting me, which is which is great. But so I took over as of last year it was my first year. Do, I'm working in the position of chef sommelier, and and uh, it was funny, you know, uh, David Lynch, who went to uh, St. Vincent's in, in San Francisco, sent me a note. He wasn't able to make it last year, and he said, "Congratulations on the new uh, on the new position. I imagine your your now your life is spent herding cats, <laughs> or something to that effect. Basically saying that sommeliers are a big pain in the ass. We are." Right, everybody's got a everybody's got a big ego, and everyone thinks they know everything right, and you know that doesn't make it easy. But I mean, I, I feel like I get along well with most sommeliers. I think I do, so it's it's not that hard of a position position for me. I just try to be nice to everybody, and and I try to work hard, and hopefully that'll inspire them to work hard too. But probably it's a lot of work. I mean, it's a lot of early mornings that you got to get up, and more tastings, you know, and then and you're tasting you're tasting a lot of wine the whole time, and you know, it's it's yeah, it's a lot of work. But I'm super appreciative that we have an awesome team of sommeliers who who get there on time and work hard and are passionate about what they're doing. You know, they're mainly working for free. You know what I mean? It's it's a it's a pretty big deal. They're only they're, they're there because they're so passionate about the idea of working in this environment and supporting Daniel in, in this great event. So I think it's kind of cool. As a as a someone who might be going to La Pole, like someone who hasn't been, what should they expect? <sighs> Man, to, to drink a lot. I think that it's, it's pretty amazing if you think about and and if you you look at the amount of wine that the clients drink to go to go to this thing, you taste unbelievable stuff. Like I know you are a big fan of the verticals tasting, which happens on it's my favorite on Fridays. It's great. Year. It's great. And that I don't think was always the case that it, everybody was as excited about it. We used to only do one session, and it was not as many winemakers now. The verticals tasting is as big as the grand tasting, which happens on Saturday. It's two sessions. And, you know, it's it's a big deal. And, you know, it's cool to walk up to the table and have Jean-Marc Rouleau pouring three vintages of, you know, Merceau Perrier or, or whatever for you. I mean, that's pretty amazing. You can actually ask the guy that's making this wine what he his feelings are on the three different vintages. And, you know. I, it's kind of like 50 cellar visits in a way. Exactly you know what true. I mean? Exactly true. Yeah. Because yeah. that's, that's kind of the same experience, sort of. You know, like I'd you agree. go in, you try the same wine, three different vintages. Hmm. He's the guy's right there to tell you about it. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a cool tasting. And then, you know, I think the Saturday is always the, probably the most astonishing that you see guests showing up at like 11 a.m. and not spitting, <laughs> which I respect because they're so excited about what's happening. But, you know, as a wine professional, the biggest mistake you can make is going to a tasting where there's 500 wines and not spitting. You're dead. I'm a much better person when I've when I've had a few drinks. Yeah, I just want to know. everyone loves me and I'm a great dancer as yeah. well. Yeah, I know. I feel exactly the same way about myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you gotta hear this story. It's so great, isn't it? Alcohol is such a great drug. Um, yeah, 
No, I think, and then and then then they show up. You know, they go home and they go they go they go out and go have lunch, and then they go to they come back for the gala dinner after even more wine, and then that's an amazing scene. I mean, the gala dinner is pretty special. It's pretty special to see, and it's exciting for these clients who who have basically spent their whole year thinking about this night and selecting the bottles that they select. You know, they they realize that it's an important place to kind of show up. You got to show up with something great because you don't, you never know who's going to be sitting next to you. You may be sitting next to, you know, Koch. You want to make sure you bring the right bottle if you're going to pour them a taste. Um, it was, it's for me, was really great because this year Daniel brought me to the real Palais in Merceau. And how was that? It was unbelievable. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable because it's very, it's in many ways exactly like what, what, what he does here, but in many ways it's, it's the total different difference of it because it's the people who make this wine celebrating, not the people that buy it. But unfortunately, I think it would probably not work if you've tried to fly out all the guys who plow, you know, um, the vineyards and everything. And that's what it is. Literally, you're, you're there. Like, there's nobody. We had a table of like six people that were Americans that we knew. And it was me and Daniel and Sally, Raj, Vidya from, um, from uh, Danielle. And then a couple other collectors. And that was it. Everybody else was from Merceau, not even just from Burgundy, just from Merceau. Like, Dominique Lafont's daughters walking around pouring, you know, a, a magnum of Montrachet from the 80s. It was pretty special. And then it's the dinners, like, it's like, he starts at noon and you don't finish like seven o'clock. It's like six courses over that long a period of time. So when you leave, you're like, really, really, you're well lubricated, I would say. Yeah. So it was, it was great. And I feel like it was really important to go and experience it firsthand because this was the thing that inspired Daniel to do this event. So for me, it was... I felt honored that he wanted to show it to me and it was awesome. I recommend going to it. <laughs> Have you seen Burgundy? I mean, it feels like you had a ringside seat over the last decade or more for a number of changes. One would be like casualization of, of wine, you know, more wine options in the, in the States that are being imported. Regions come up from that we hadn't normally been associating with wine before, like the Jura, but also it's just the great rise of, of burgundy and esteem and collectability and uh you know so many fans of it what was it like watching that progression you know over the last decade or so oh it's i mean it's it's kind of sad actually because <laughs> the wines aren't quite as easy to get anymore but i mean it's exciting you never you always want to root for people to to succeed i just don't want it to be so hard to to buy the wines that i love which is basically what it's become i mean even to the point where beaujolais right it's like amazing to watch what's happened with that i mean you know, Foyard Weiss be able to pour that by the glass, those wines. And now you, you get like a six bottle allocation from the distributor. It's like, it's like terrifying. The Beaujolais Nouveau from Foyard is like $22 retail. It's crazy, right? That's, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Actually. For a Beaujolais Nouveau. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> those wines are supposed to cost nine bucks. Isn't that's, that what it's all about? That's yeah. That's what the Cote de Puy used to cost. Yeah. You know I mean? Yeah. It's crazy. It's a good wine though. That Beaujolais Nouveau. Oh, it's a, yes, it is. <laughs> the 13 is very tasty. Unbelievable. Yeah. But I mean, I guess that's what it's going to be, right? I mean, that's what's going to happen to the Jura. That's what's going to happen to the Loire. I mean, the Loire is already there too. Like, look, look at how expensive those wines have become. I mean, that, that was like, that was like go-to wine and, and for like house wine, just house consumption, like, and, and, you know, there's still great value to be found there for sure, but it's not what it, what it, what it was. I, the whole world, I think the whole world has changed. I mean, I remember I get so angry when I talk to like Joe, Joe Doherty, who you know as well, he talks about um, Overnoir and, and like it's Overnoir is a wine that I'm, completely obsessed with and i haven't I've, I've drank it i mean if you look at my instagram feed i do drink it every now and again but it's not like i mean i hadn't had it until 
when, well, I guess, I don't know, the first time that I had it, probably three years ago was the first time I ever had it. I had heard of it, but then I remember tasting it with Joe and he's like, man, I remember walking into chambers and there's like a wall, they couldn't give them away. They were like, we would like put them on sale to get rid of those wines. I remember Joe Dresner asking me if I wanted to have a Overwatch pour when I was at Maso, like whether I wanted to pour it by the glass. Oh my God. Yeah, can you believe that? No. And I, I didn't have the balls to do it because I, I thought the wines were too funky and oh I, I didn't think people would get it. Like, I love the wine. I was like, well, this is really tasty. It was a Chardonnay. Yeah. I was like, this is delicious. And it's like, well, if you want, we have enough. You could, you know, pour it. It was like a good pour price. It was like, glass. you know, 20 less, maybe 20 something, <laughs> a bottle, you know. And that was, I never got that offer again. No. <laughs> yeah. You, you can't even buy that wine. Like, if you go on Wine Searcher and you search for it, you can't, you cannot buy it. Like for me, there's only two wines in the world that, that you can't, I think, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty more, but the only two wines that I want that I can't buy are Auvergne and Trollot. Those two wines, mm -hmm. just impossible to find. And, and it's it's great that that's the case because that way when you get to taste it, you do, it's more magical. Trollot also another wine that wasn't like big time and it was- Not at know, all. More like a, a you know, a, a wine to drink. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, but Saint Joseph as a, as, a, as a particular terroir back then was like- that's a wine you pour by the glass. It's like, you know, to see Cornas and Saint-Joseph blow up now, it's so crazy to think. Like you, you used to, Cornas was a wine you would pour by the glass at a restaurant. You can't, there's not much Cornas you could buy at a price that you could actually pour by the glass for people who who, who would thought that that would ever have happened. You know, it's 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 really crazy. I mean, th those prices were reserved for what you would pay for Saint-Joseph or for uh, Hermitage or Cote those, those were the Those were the regions that, you know, pulled in big money. And even back then, like, Shav was like 75 bucks, you know, 10 years ago. It's, it's really, it, it definitely breaks my heart because I feel like there are so many great wines out there that people, some people will never have the chance to, to taste because it's just out of their price range. And they're not wines that were designed to be that way. That wasn't the way the winemaker wanted it, but I don't know. It is it's sad. You know, sometimes I think when we started, like I distinctly remember my first only job drinking 89 Reyes and 96 Lafitte and Loire Corton Charlemagne. Those are all like, that was like the first week of yeah. my swimming. And uh, 89 La Mission, I remember. I remember bringing home a couple open bottles from an event of 89 La Mission just because there were so many of them and there was a lot. And they were like, well, you want to take these home? Um, but, you know, sometimes I wonder like, so those moments, that those are moments that made me think, I could do this for the rest of my life, you know? Yeah. But when I look at someone like Kimberly, who I like a lot, who works with you. Thanks. Um, I think she's awesome. Sometimes I wonder, like, is the Foyard Beaujolais Nouveau going to do it for her? Like, you know, is she going to, like, have that wine and think, you know, the next 20 years I could do this? You know, I mean, I know it's a nice wine. I think it does. I think she does. I mean, she's, you know, sure, her, she's got the purest heart in the world, that girl. She's, I mean, Kimberly Livingston, we're talking about my sommelier, who was just like a... <sighs> admin and a waitress when I met her who was interested in wine. She's taking, she's taking um, one of Annabelle's wine classes because she was interested in wine. And so I was like, yeah, would you be interested in helping me out with the program? And she was, she's yeah, with like, you know, her starry little eyes that she has so excited about it and has now become, you know, yeah. But, but you know what, honestly, Debbie, when the first time she had that Beaujolais Nouveau, I saw her light up again. Like she lights up every time she tries a new wine and she's like the way I've tried to, to teach her is to always have an open mind never be pretentious and and never assume you know anything about wine because you, those are you the, told her distinctly not to be like levy you're like i was i, I said exactly yeah 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 <laughs> do you do like ghost of christmas past you're like <laughs> you're like i want to take you on a tour <laughs> it's like it's like levy at the counting table like you know in the cold office like don't become like this guy 
<laughs> that's not true <laughs> but there are plenty of bad soul ways that i could use as examples as to who she shouldn't be but we won't go there um no i i just i try to i try to, to keep it positive with her and try to you know yeah i mean she she's that way already and it's funny to hear like like who we had the guy from drew uh winery in in california uh who works with a lot of vineyards that belong to um uh who, who what was what's that rocchioli and he's talking to her about Rokioli, like, you know, she should know Rokioli. Oh, right, right. right. Of course and, you've had it all. And, 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 and I, I know what Rokioli is because I, I actually, I, at some point came clean him. I was like, listen, you have to start talking about Rokioli because David Gordon used to buy every Rokioli wine every year. And we used to have two-page vertical of Rokioli Pinot Noir at, at, at uh, Tribeca Grill. And inventorying those wines was like the worst part of my month. Without a doubt. Look the same. Oh my God. East Bend and East River and <laughs> East whatever. And it used to drive me nuts. I'm like, I'll never buy a bottle of this wine ever. Poor Rokioli family. I'm sorry. I apologize. They're great wines. They were good, good wines. Yeah. I haven't tried them in a few years. I haven't had them in a while either. It used, to be on, it used to be on list. I mean, you mm -hmm. used to see it all the time. Yeah, it was super allocated. You get like three bottles of everything. It was like it was like the way William Salim used to be back in the day. But so he's telling her the story about how the vines came from the Rokioli vineyard. And she's just looking at him like, you know, she's got no idea what he's talking about. But she's smiling and listening. And I'm like, Kim, do you know who Rokioli is? She's like, nope. And then he was like, he stopped in his tracks for a minute. He's like, wow. I think it's cool to see like maybe winemakers seeing that there's a new generation of sommeliers who didn't read Robert Parker and it's okay. And it might be better for them in the end. And, and you know, I think that that's the, that's the coolest thing about what's happening in the wine world now is that the, the trade of sommelier is like really interesting to people. Like, right. I feel yes, like a is. lot of people yeah. want to become sommeliers. Like I get emails all, all the, time the time from people who are like, I How want do to you get that job. Yeah. All the people. That's I, why I started my blog called that. That's yeah. why it's called that. Cause so many so people would ask me, makes sense. Like, how do you become a, you know, yeah, so I think a lot of them look at it as like a race car driver. Like, how do you become a NASCAR driver? Like, how does that, you know, how That's do you, cool. you know what I mean? Like, yeah, because there are people who do this job, but you don't see it in the paper or like, you don't see like, right. you know, oh, show up on East 34th Street. We're going to do driving tryouts. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just yeah. like, how do you, how do you become a Formula One racer? Like, how does that happen? That it's, seems exciting. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, no, for sure. But so that's amazing, right? But, and I, and I think that it's the... I think what's happening in the wine world now, not only because of that, but I think also with what, what technology is, is giving us, you know, with things like delectable or like, or like Instagram, like the, I, the need for one voice is no more. Like, I mean, I've said in, when I was here previously that I respect Robert Parker, I learned a ton from him and I think he was a necessary thing at a necessary time. And I think that as we're seeing this kind of things change a bit, I think it's more about the bigger community. And really that's the thing that, that, the more voices, the better. And I think I learn still by things like Instagram. I mean, I follow a lot of wine people and I'm watching them. And you know what? When I see them post a bottle of wine that they're excited about, you know what I'm going to do right away? Buy a bottle of that wine, taste it. Like, I think that that it's become a better way to learn than, or it's become the alternate way to, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no other option, I think, at this point. And I think technology is such an important part of our life as a whole. It's a great way to really find out what's going on. And, and you know, I, I use it for sure. I mean, when I get excited about wines, I, I'm, the first thing I want to do is tell everybody, you know, that I'm excited about it. It's probably a bad idea because it probably makes it more expensive and harder to get. But it seems to be a successful sommelier trait, though. For sure. You know. I think, I think pe yeah, if people aren't already on Instagram watching sommeliers, they should do that because there's, there's, there, I think it's a great way to really find out what, what is happening in the wine world and what the new wines that um, are going to be affecting the market are. So it seems to me when I, I talk to sommeliers now, everyone seems so much more enthusiastic than they did when I remember before. I mean, we, everyone liked wine before, but it, it felt more like a job somehow. 
I don't know. Everyone seems like really uh, like vocal. Like, yeah. yeah, I'm having a great time. Like, which I I don't know. Maybe you saw it more. I don't know. No, I I think it's changed. I, I think also the community has become closer too. I feel like when I when I was coming up, and I mean you were a bit more in the community at that point when I was still at Veritas. I think you 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 were buying wines at a, I mean I wasn't buying wines at a restaurant until I was at at Guild. So. I didn't have that same connection, but I remember standing on the outside, kind of like pushing my face up against the glass, kind of watching, and I didn't feel like it was as tight of a network. I saw you do that recently, except it wasn't your face. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying for the record. I've seen a little too much of Patrick Capiello. I was at Enotech's last night when they wouldn't let me in. (laughs) Shame on them. (laughs) But uh, so, So, yeah, I mean, what was that like for you to switch from... I mean, it's amazing to watch your career progression because I think a lot of you were there the whole time. You were you predate my era in New York for a long time because I was in Boston for a long time and in Florida, you know, in Sommelier, but not here in New York. And you were uh, you were here the whole time, but you weren't buying. And I felt like a lot of people didn't know who you are, you know, like who, like the broader public didn't know. Hmm. And now your diet is chronicled in like New York Magazine. So like, <laughs> you know, it's like not only do I know him now, I know he likes his pancakes with buttermilk, you yeah. know, like that kind of thing. So, I mean, what's that? I mean, that's been a fairly short period of time that that's happened. That's been like a nine month change. It's been a quite a year. Yeah, a quite a year. Because it's, and the thing is, it's not really who I am. Like, I don't, I don't actually like all of pancakes. this attention you don't like no I, I don't i don't i i am actually a very introverted person and i tend to not really want to be out there hanging out it's very uncomfortable for me to do it but i know that it's important for my restaurant and for also for people i, I want i want people to embrace wine so i think if you know whether or not if i become chosen as one of the people who are who 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 get people excited about drinking wine and if, i mean how, look at how many people don't people drink wine now than than they did 10 years ago levy it's amazing right well i think you see it a lot more than me but I mean, does it seem like it's a lot more youth culture now? Yeah, totally. And I mean, you know, for for me, I, I spoke on not maybe not to you, but I spoke before about my trip to Paris about two years ago, which where you it was August of yeah, to me a year and a half ago, and it was the trip that really at least planted the seed in my head about why I was angry about what was happening in, in the in the wine world in New York. And I wasn't hanging out at Ten Bells really. I mean, even I go there every now and again, but I didn't know if the scene was still what it was when it first started. But if you go to like Vervolet when I was in Paris, really like changed me when I went there. And I was like, wow, this is like, like young people everywhere, like having wine and eating food together. They weren't drinking beer or cocktails, especially because the cocktail culture was, you know, really such an important thing a few years back. And I feel like it was overshadowing the wine culture, which is- In New York, you mean? In New York. Yeah. I think so. I think that's still true. Today. Yeah. I, I do. Just, yeah. We don't see it because we're so in the wine thing. But yeah. I, I think for a young person, I think it's much more appealing to go to a, oh, to a I, cocktail place. I have, a, I have a restaurant that doesn't have a liquor license. So, I mean, you know, we just have beer and wine license. So for sure, I see people being disappointed when they can't order cocktails. So I know it's important, but that's, that's, that's how we did it. We forced no choices. They can, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> limit the choices. That's how we'll do it. But no, I think, I think it's changed though. I, I mean, I'm, and the, I was back in Paris a few weeks ago again. And we, even on that scene, like to see where it went from, Two years previous, Vervolet, Chateaubriand, Frenchie were the ones that were really changing the game. And now it's like you have restaurants like Bones, Mary Celeste, like really exciting restaurants that are pushing that same, that same, you know, thing. And, and it, I mean, we had, we had great meals when we were there and the vibe continues to be the same way, young people. And I think if you look, if you go to Estella now, if you go to Charlie Bird tonight, I think you'll see that, that the dynamic is more people drinking wine, definitely at our place. And I think there it's a younger, younger dynamic. 
but with that comes, you know, a lot of responsibility to making sure that you can give them great wines that they can afford. And that's always the hard thing because young people tend to have less desire and less budget, you know, less whatever kind of miscellaneous mad money to, to blow on wine. I think that it's, you have to, as a wine buyer, you have to be sensitive to that. They're more open to picking anything, right. but it, they don't want to waste their money. Exactly right. That's why, I mean, we have, uh, right now I have like 50 selections under 50 bucks and there's more than 200 under 100 because I think that's an important area to really capture people at. And some restaurants don't have, you know, even wine lists that big, let alone all wines underneath that area. But there's so much great wine to buy in that price point, I think, that is really fun, delicious wine. So. As you said, there's not so many people with longer wine lists. I mean, do people really spend the time to look through the wine list? I feel, you know, like, do they sit there at the table and take the 10 minutes to look through or is it online or, yeah. I mean, how do people it, engage it, with the list? It, it is online and people do look online. I get people that come in with printed up pages, highlighted wines that they already want, which I think is really fun to know that people are using that. We update the wine list a couple times a week. I like to keep it like fresh and real. I don't like misrepresenting what we have. But people also spend a lot of time with the wine list. People who come there, people who come to Pearl and Ash because they they are excited about the opportunity to drink wine there will take a lot of time and they'll want to talk for sure. But they also drink like a lot of wine, like multiple bottles. We sell, We, I mean, for the size of the restaurant, the amount of wine we sell is pretty amazing. Like it's, Brandon had a budget when he started that restaurant and, and I've definitely completely destroyed what his budget was. As far as the idea, the cost is a lot higher than he ever imagined, but, but it doesn't matter. But people are there to drink wine and and they're 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 younger than i ever imagined they would be and they want to talk about it they want to have a dialogue they they want to they want to they want to know what we as a wine team are excited about there and they want to get on board with it so does it feel to you like there's less emphasis on being right and i feel like it used to be people were very scared to say something that was incorrect whereas now i feel like there's more just kind of in general openness about wine i don't know i think i think so I mean, I, 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 you know, I don't, I don't know everything for sure. I, and, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to, when a guest asks me a question for me, if they bought a wine that I'd never heard of, I'm like, you know, I don't know. I don't know about it. But tell me, tell me about it. If it's exciting to you, I, I think, yeah, I think people are, yeah. Some ways tend to be, I think they seem a bit more humble than, than they were. Is, is that the question? Humble or not? On both sides. I mean, I just feel like the, you know, you may not, not agree or see it differently. So I'm asking, but. Sometimes I feel like the big concern before was that you had to be to be right. Right, yeah. And now the big concern is you have to be enthusiastic, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. That's 100% right. You know? Yeah. Like, I, I see the difference between someone, this is not a criticism of either side. Someone from an older generation, like maybe before you mm -hmm. and me, I think, you know, you would go and you would say, what do you think about this wine? And the guy would say, well, I like that. 96 but in my opinion i feel like the 95 is drinking better mm -hmm. and so for me i would order the 95 and right. then half the time the guy would get the 95 and half the time he'd be like well the 96 was rated more which is why i asked you about it so i'm gonna get the 96 you know what i mean mm -hmm. like that was how life was i think and now i feel like not not at pearl nash because you're a very knowledgeable guy but i think in a lot of restaurants people are like what do you think about this 06 versus this 05 because obviously we're further ahead in time now and people don't have the back vintages they used to and somebody will say like i don't know but let's drink them and find out you know <laughs> like i don't know that's they, they both seem awesome to me and the guy will be like uh okay well you know let's get them both and you know you and can check bring, it out and check it out let's see let's see you're right you no, know what i mean no, no, you're right certitude is kind of like less of a thing now somehow like yeah. it's more about uh just kind of 
I don't know. Let's find out. Let, yeah. Let's find out. Like kind of a, you know, this might seem like a trite, uh, trite comparison, but I, I watched the, the Macklemore and Lewis, uh, <laughs> like the heist video recently. Okay. And I was like, this dude's on a fucking, um, a wooden ship. He's yeah. in a, in a, in a biplane. He's in the Antarctic. He's in LA at a, at a, at a back party, like a backyard party. It seems like the whole thing of, of like, I, I saw that and I was like, man, youth culture, man, it wants to explore. It wants to be like on a bobsled. It wants to be like extreme plane flying. It wants to be like on, you know, a colonial era ship. You know, it wants to like, it's a combination of like old tradition and just, extreme exploring it's like not extreme sports but it's like extreme like what's gonna happen when yeah. you know yeah yeah no i think i think that's that's a you're right it's a that, that's a statement as to what what what's happening in the culture of youth right now and i think it affects their their adventure adventurous nature when it comes to exploration and you know restaurants too but yeah i mean so did you find that to be in a way something you had to engage with at a marketing level i mean you mentioned a little bit before but you know when i opened up food and wine recently and i saw you on a skateboard i was like wait a second <laughs> like you know i mean do you regularly ride a skateboard or was that uh how, how did that come together I mean, how did you uh, find yourself with a bottle of wine in your hand yeah, yeah, yeah. riding a skateboard in a t-shirt i mean you know i mean i know you for a while so yeah. i'm just you i know. dude i grew up riding skateboards did yes. you yeah, i grew up okay. i mean it was a big part of my life i grew up in a, in a like middle lower did you ever middle. suggest to tim kopeck that it would be faster to use a skateboard in a i never i never did i never did like i could get to the bar so much quicker <laughs> <laughs> i just you know uh, i <laughs> as i said i got <laughs> i grew up on a skateboard i did my whole life i was i, I skateboarded my whole life i have i have like one of my original decks hanging on the wall in my apartment um, and then, you know, I, it's become, I think that because I'm shaking it up a little bit with, with like not by not wearing a suit or just do you know what the whole era of the whole air at Pearl and Ash, like Royale came to Pearl and Ash and he was like amazed, you know, and I served him like Gamay from Suo, which nice he'd never had. He's well. the best. He's great. And he was excited about what I was doing there. And, you know, we, he knew me from, from when I worked at Guild, but he was so excited about it. And he wanted to, he wanted to do this interview with me and. He's like, I don't know anything about you. Tell me about how you grew up and tell me blah, blah, blah. And tell me why, you know, why do you have so many tattoos and whatever. And, you know, I've just basically explained to him that I grew up and I, I grew up in like counterculturalism, like, like that. And I grew up because, because in high school, like, like the, the quarterback from the football team will kick my ass. Like I, that was the kid that I was, I, I was like, I was like a loser, whatever. I was, I was like a dork. You know what I mean? I was like a total spaz. Like, and that was. I hung out with all the metal kids and I hung out with you, the counterculture people. When, when, when the top 90% of the school doesn't want to hang out with you, you wind up hanging out with, with the rest of the people. And, you know, you learn real quick about how close, how close friends can be when, when you're in that situation. You know, you're almost like hanging on to each other for your life. How, but how, how close friends can how be? Clo close. Like an enclosed wall. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I told him my story of just kind of growing up that way. And, and not, I didn't grow up around fancy food or fancy wine. Like, you know what I mean? It's, it wasn't, it wasn't, any part of me at all i grew up working at restaurants because i wanted to have money to be able to like own a car and like you know whatever like uh, be able to buy skateboard parts and that, that was it it were comic books like that's that's the kind of stuff i did so i got my experience in restaurants that basically pushed me through to the end but so after i told him the story he, he emailed me he's like yeah uh, our photographer's gonna come on and take some pictures to put with the article he's like do you would you be willing to in the i guess whatever the editor or on Dana Cowan or somebody thought thought it'd be fun to have me on a skateboard, and and they and they asked me, and I was like, you know, honestly, like, 
my, the deck that I have is like, is like the, the wheels are off of it. I haven't rode. I mean, I'm 41 years old. I have really bad knees because I rode skateboards for so, so long and it does mess up your knees. So I haven't rode in a while. It's probably been three or four years since I even got on a deck. I mean, I'll go out with friends who still do, who are younger than me, but I'll usually just wind up like videotaping them or whatever. And uh, that'll be it, you know? But so I was like, yeah, I was like, they asked me if I could get a skateboard. I was like, yeah, I'll buy one, no problem. It was fun. I was able to go out and I bought a really cool deck actually. And I'm, I, 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 not now because it's snowing out, but yeah, I, since I only live five blocks in the restaurant, it's an easy way of transportation. So I guarantee you I'll be on it from time to time, but I won't be doing any tricks anytime soon. But so they asked me to do that and you know, whatever, man, if for, for them, they want to try and connect with a younger dynamic. So if I can help them do that, I'll do whatever, man. I'll put, I'll put a, I'll put a clown suit on if you want me to. It's, 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 if it's for the better, if it's for the better of, of the wine community. And if it's for, it's, if it, if it means that wine is going to be cool and that people are going to drink more of it and sommeliers are going to be less intimidating to people, then I will do it. I'll do whatever I can do for that cause. Cause I believe in it. And, and I, I feel very lucky to be able to do what I do for a living. So I was thinking about dressing up as a Japanese anime character, you know, in the dining room and, and, you know, because I feel like one, they're approachable, <laughs> like, you know, no one feels like Pikachu is a dick, you know, and then two, like, you know, we could reach Pikachu. multiple cultures, get, get more Asian women, you know, <laughs> drinking wine, you know, because they often don't. Is that true? Know. I didn't know that. Well, they don't, they don't have the, uh, some of them don't have the enzyme to drink. They get the red face thing and they, they can, they can't handle a lot, you know. So. Yeah. That doesn't sound like a really profitable venture, but we right. Do it. Yeah. We'll call it, we'll call it one glass wine shop. <laughs> Oh, you want one glass? As long as we can turn the table five times, six times, I can have Brandon run an Excel spreadsheet for you and tell you if it would be a profitable restaurant or not. I was, uh, did I ever tell you the thing that I wanted to do, you know, old Barolo and no food as a, as a, as a business model? Yeah. And like white Roan, white Roan, old Barolo, that was it. That's all we would have. It's great. You know, just so, wines that are not so easy to serve. Yeah. Like, uh, call us five hours before you get here. We'll double decant it. <laughs> And then we don't know if the white white wine you ordered is going to taste oxidized or fresh. Oh, I really couldn't man. tell you. Like, <laughs> or if it's supposed to. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you my know, God. We'll find out when you get here. But also no food to go with it. Just you got to power through it. Just. <laughs> sounds, like a, sounds like a successful business opportunity. I know how to make no yeah, money. Can I, can I invest in that? How do I, how do I get involved in that? Let me sell my shares of Pearl and Ash so I can buy into that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, speaking about that... I mean, I can't, I can't imagine that you make more money leaving, even though you're like a super popular guy and everyone's talking about you. I mean, was it a financial hit to leave the Midtown well-funded hotel huge, scene? Huge, man, huge. Yeah, it was a big deal. I mean, when I started there, when, when I was just consulting, Brandon and I would go get coffee around the corner and he'd be telling me the whole time how I'm- make him buy. Oh, of course, I had no money. <laughs> Actually, he's, a, you know, he's, trust me, he's just as poor as me. But, um, you know, we, the whole, the whole, he kept saying, you're gonna stay here. I'm like, Brandon, you're not gonna be able to match the money. I have like 401k. I have all this amazing health benefits. I have everything. I have a maid. I have a, I'm gonna be spending half my time in the office just dialing up me and me, me on the phone with Mr. Dom Perignon. Let's get it going. You know, I, and I didn't, he's like, do you think it's gonna make you happy? And I'm like, of course it's not gonna make me happy, but it's gonna, it's gonna get me closer to retirement or closer to whatever, you know, buying an apartment or not living, you know, in a fifth floor walk up, which I still live in, thanks to him. But no, I mean, but I don't go to the sixth floor. <clears throat> no, you've learned that. Yeah, there's an alarm that goes off when you do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a great story. Uh, uh, oh God. So, yeah, I mean, I took a significant pay cut. I mean, for equity, that was the point. I mean, now I live on what I can afford to live on. I, I don't, you know, I rely on the kindness of other sommeliers to, to keep my dining experiences good, which is very good to me. But, um, 
I drink a lot more German wine. That's it. That's exactly what it is, honestly. Like, you know, I remember I used to, I used to drink Burgundy a lot. That was my preferred drink when I went out. And that was what I would order at restaurants. Or that's what I would, you know, buy for myself to drink at stores. Now I buy cases of Clos Roche Blanche when I can. Cuvée Piff, it's great, man. The best. Uh, Pet 07 recently was, was good. Oof, great. Actually, that was a co. Sorry, but the Where? Piff is good too. I I I, I had O five uh, co at and O seven co you had yeah 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 yeah, 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 so, yeah, yeah. yeah. wines are great still still fresh still vibrant the best one of the best values left in the wine world for sure. What about the sword? Uh, there was this long piece of metal you were using to scrape off corks from champagne bottles. <laughs> How did that get going? <laughs> sabering, you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How did the sabering start? Sabering started. I mean. You know, it's I happened actually started back in the age of Napoleon. If I really want to get technical, I didn't invent sabering, that's for sure. Um, but uh, when I was at Veritas, there was a client there, a guy named Bruce Fingerit, who's the biggest collector of champagne in the world. The guy carries his saber around with him. You know, you know him. I did not know that. Yeah. I should be nicer to him. In his I bag. Him. Yeah, he should be careful. So you never know. <laughs> but he used to leave one in the cellar at Veritas so that he would have it whenever he wanted a saber wine. So he started doing it and I learned how to do it there, but then it never really sprung up much in my life, but I knew how to do it. And um, the closing night of, of guilt was uh, the, the, the night we closed the restaurant. We decided to have a huge party and just open a ton of wine and get really drunk and just say goodbye to the restaurant the only way that you know how to. Kind of like what we did at you know, Tech of the other day. You know? I think that's, it's sad when restaurants close, but uh, you got to do it. So we, we did a speech at the end. Justin and I jumped up on the bar and I took a chef's knife, his chef's knife actually, and uh, I sabered a magnum of 2,000 Dom Perignon. And uh, that was the start of it. If you go back and look in the Instagram feed for Guilt Restaurant, you can see it's, some people took some photos of it. And I remember I went back not so long and looked at that. I was pretty excited to see it. But so then it was kind of all of a sudden there in my mind, at least. So Pearl and Ash, after a few not so nice reviews from unnamed critics, um, we had a really nice review from the New York Times and Pete Wells. And uh, we decided to have a party that night. I remember that party. Yeah. And uh, I bought, and we, we knew the review was coming. We, we, knew, we knew that it was coming out on that Wednesday. And I said, you know what? We're good. Let's buy a bunch of champagne. We're going to buy, we bought a keg of Pacifico, tons of Modelo and uh, like cases of Modelo. And I'm like, we're going to have a fucking party no matter what happens. I don't care what the review is going to be. We're going to have a party. It's either, either going to be, you know, like screw it. We made it through the, all the, all the criti critical uh, time period or else we're going to be excited for a review. And the review came out. And I thought it was a really great review. I was very happy with how it came out. And um, it was one of the first reviews to really put the <laughs> sommelier front and center since maybe Tim or John Luke Ledoux, I thought. Yeah. Or Paul Greco. I think Paul Greco. Paul Greco, was, Greco yeah, sure. Paul, Paul was, yeah. I mean, Paul was definitely an inspiration for me on Pearl and Ash. But you're like in that. three paragraphs of that. It was a lot about me. And I, I mean, it's, it was very hard. You know, we were I counted sitting. All those thanks. Yeah. Yeah, every, how many words is it again? <laughs> It was me and Richard were sitting in the front window in Pearl and Ash just hitting refresh because we knew it was coming. And then the review came up and popped up and then the picture was there. And then I started reading the review and I'm, re I'm looking next to him and I'm kind of glancing at him like, oh my God, this guy's going to kill me. <laughs> and then finally at some point- they started, started carrying a sword around. Yeah, that was like a nervous. So that night we did the party and I, bought, I had a Jeroboam of Pierre Peters that I bought and we- we did our speech and I sabered it and I hosed down Richard and I hosed down Brandon. And, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And then it got ugly and we just kept sabering wine and then more great accolades came after that. But when Appetit's, you know, um, top 50 came and we celebrated that night and every time there was a, I think we, because the first few reviews were, were just by people who were, for some reason just didn't want to understand what we were trying to do. It was really hard. I mean, I, and it, I'd never been through a review process. I'd never opened a restaurant before. 
I, I mean, I had already signed on as partner before all these reviews started coming out. And I was thinking to myself, what did I do? Like, what did I do? I made, a, made the biggest mistake in my entire life. Like I've really, really, I've ruined my career. I left an amazing opportunity at a, at a huge hotel with a huge budget to take this job in this, in, this, in this restaurant. And, you know, people are saying really mean things about the wine list and about me. And I couldn't understand why, because, I, you know, I didn't do anything to these people personally. I, I was nice to them when they came in the restaurant, but for some reason they didn't want to, they didn't want to get excited. So, so then when the one came out, it, it was great. And then we had a lot of great stuff after that. And it was awesome. And then it just became kind of a, a statement that we would do when we, friends would come over, we'd saber a bottle. And I was always using a chef's knife. And I was like, you know, I need to get like a proper blade. So I went on and I have an obsession with skulls, as some people know. Um, and so I Googled skull sword and this eBay link popped up with some sword that's it's called the demon slayer sword so it's called and it's got skulls on the handles and it's like a katana sword it's so huge and i'm like you know what that's that's perfect let's buy that and i bought it and uh we started using that and now it's funny to watch like kim get on the bar and she she does it too you know bryn as well both of them are are, are fully saber certified and even mel who is our assistant uh, general manager at the restaurant so it's become part of the culture there and it's like we get people who come in who are like can we can we order a bottle of champagne and have it sabered? Like it's 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 fun that that's part of the another element to Pearl and Ash, and you know it may not be for everybody. It's definitely not the safest thing we do, especially after a bunch of drinks. But but it's it's a lot of fun. If I'm gonna saber something, what's what's what should I remember? What's the first couple steps I need to be thinking about? Uh, the bottle's got to be cold. That's important. I mean, only if you don't want to lose a lot of it. It actually sabers better when it's not cold. But if it's if it's cold, you're gonna lose less. Um, you got to remove the foil completely. You got to remove the, the cage. You don't want to point it at anybody once the cage comes off. That's really, that's really dangerous. And then really it's about just sliding the sword down it just at a little bit of an angle. You're just making contact with the lip of the bottle and that pressure is doing all the rest. So you don't have to like chop it off. You're really just, just trying to crack it. It's really not, I mean, you see Kim, she's not a big girl, you know, she's, she's tiny. And the fact that she can do it like real easy is, is definitely part of it. But I would be careful. I, I think that it's it's not the safest thing in the world to do and if you're at a party i don't want, i don't i don't i don't want to be the result of a bad saber accident i'm just waiting for that day when the police show up but but it's yeah i think i think just using safety and and really just if you if you understand the, the physics of how it works do you find that people take pictures often or? they do there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of pictures being taken there's a hashtag on instagram and on twitter sabertown usa that was invented by uh Two regulars at the bar, two guys that you know, you know, Brian Garcia and Dean Sen, who uh, were there the night that we started sabering, like, I don't know how many bottles. We were there like two in the morning, sabering wine like crazy. And then they started taking these pictures. Those guys are super involved in social media and they, and they started uh, tagging it, Sabertown USA, and it caught on. So, yeah, it's a fun part of it, I think. It definitely makes the night go by a little bit quicker. And speaking of social media, when you post up those bottle pics at the end of the night, I mean, are you literally remembering all those lyrics or it's <laughs> like a different punk song every it's night. a lot of it's you, a lot of different are you on google or i mean at, at first i was like oh no obviously he knows all the lyrics but now that we've done like 70 of you know yeah. i mean do you really remember no i I, go, I google the lyrics i google the lyrics i mean you, usually they there's a song that plays that night that inspires me or one that i think of that'd be fun but yeah i have to google the lyrics for sure i mean my you know i don't have as many brain cells as i used to and, and i want to make sure i spell everything right i'm a pretty bad speller so yeah that's the, you figured it out. <laughs> so what's next for Patrick Capiello? I mean, you've done a lot in the last year has been like, just, you know, it's like the, the court coming out of the saber bottle for you. You know, what's, what's, what's going to happen in the future? I don't know. It's there, there's, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of ideas. I mean, Brandon is an idea guy and he's always thinking and always moving and, you know, he, he wants to push me in, in every way possible. I mean, I think we'd like to open another restaurant at some point. It's definitely something we'd like to do. It's, it's in some ways not an easy time to open a restaurant in New York right now because there is such a demand for restaurants and there are so many restaurants opening. It wasn't like it was five or six years ago where you could find inexpensive uh, spaces. So we're, we're trying to work that out. We would, we would love to open something in the next year or so um, if we can find the right space and have it be the right fit and, you know, be kind of about what we're doing. We want to, we want to stay true to what we're doing. Would it look like Pearl and Ash or would it be different? I don't know. I mean, I don't want to put this suit back on ever. So it's not going to be that much fancier for me, at least. I, I don't want it to be. I mean, I'd, I'd love to have a situation where it's just, a di I wouldn't want to do another Pearl and Ash. I, I, I like the idea of try, switching it up and trying something different. So, I mean, I guess we'd have to wait and see. It's it's just, it's an issue I, I think of, yeah, I don't, I, I, want, I, want to, I want to keep the energy, what, what we're doing and the mentality about the way we approach wine and food should always be the same for us. I don't ever want to, I don't ever want to go back to that old, old guard mentality. Yeah. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for having me, love. Patrick Capiello of Pearl and Ash on the Bowery. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.